you want to take your Bibles this morning, we're going to go to 1 Peter. Today is a momentous day, and we are celebrating the anniversary of our country's founding this week in Independence Day. And so I hope we can thank the Lord together for that. But in addition to that, we've actually just made it to 1 Peter chapter 2. Okay? So we finished chapter 1. I think it was uh, 17 or 18 weeks that we were in chapter 1, but we're in chapter 2 today. So 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to begin today. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read the first three verses, but as an introduction before we get to that, let me just remind you a little bit of chapter 1. In the first chapter, Peter really focuses on two main points. He first starts by reminding us of the great salvation that we have, the eternal inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ by the power of God, and we have that to look forward to. And then his second main point is that because we've received that salvation, then we are to desire to be like him in holiness, and that's the call that's put forth to believers, to be holy as God is holy. And at the end of of chapter 1, we saw last week and the week before He reminds us that our eternal life and our eternal inheritance are only possible and indeed only guaranteed because of the eternal nature of God's word, which is the power that gives all of that to us. It is the power of salvation. It is the power to make us holy. All of that is found in the word of God, and it's that way because The word of God is eternal, and the word of God is eternal because God is eternal. That is his nature. And so everything about our salvation, everything about the promises we have, everything about our holiness comes down and finds its source in God's eternal word. That's the point at which he ends chapter 1. And the beginning of chapter 2 continues that same theme of the importance of God's word in our Christian lives as the source of our spiritual growth. Salvation doesn't just happen and then we're done. Salvation is the beginning of life. It's the beginning of that journey to find God, to know God, and to become like Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so it's a continuing thing, and we must continue on that journey in what we call spiritual growth. That's the maturing process that we find ourselves in as the Holy Spirit continues to do his work in us to make us holy in the image of Jesus Christ. And so we find in the first three verses here in chapter 2 a description of what that spiritual growth will look like as we pursue God's will for us going forward from salvation. So we're going to start with just verses 1 through 3 in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. And we'll just take those uh, under consideration today. So starting in number in verse 1, chapter 2 says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let's take a minute to pray before we continue on. Father, again, we just thank you that you've given us your word, the absolute truth, the things and everything, really, that you want us to know about you, about 
being saved, about our spiritual life, about how we can find your will in our lives. And so, Lord, as we undertake that endeavor today to seek the knowledge that you want us to have, but also to obtain wisdom through your word, I pray that your spirit would open our minds and hearts to understanding. Lord, we can only even understand and practice this because of the power of your word, because of the power that your spirit gives us and the understanding that comes through his work in our hearts and minds. So, Lord, help us to yield to your truth now. Lord, I confess my own weakness. I confess that I don't know everything, and so I need your help. I need your strength, so fill me with your spirit now as I preach. I pray that you give me the words to say and give me boldness to speak the truth. But, Lord, teach us in understanding your word so that you might receive the glory and praise, and we'll give you thanks in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin chapter 2, as I mentioned, Peter is still on this same theme of the importance of God's eternal word in our Christian lives, not just for our salvation, but he now goes on to the topic of the continuing sanctification or literally our spiritual growth in Christ. And he points out three aspects of spiritual growth in these first three verses here for one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we're going to look at these three aspects of spiritual growth today. Let me very quickly, I'm going to list them for you. Number one, he says there's going to be a desire for God's word. Number two, there will be a deletion of old sins and old thinking patterns. And number three, there will be a delight in God's grace. Now we'll take them one by one. The first one we see here is a spiritual, that spiritual growth depends upon a desire for God's word. God's word is the substance. It is the essence. It's everything that we need in order to grow spiritually once we are saved. Now, we're actually going to skip down to verse 2, and here's the reason why. Because at the end of chapter 1, as I was talking about earlier, Peter describes what the demonstration of true holiness is. We saw that. In verse 22 of chapter 1, he says that we love one another or love each other with a brotherly love that is unfeigned or sincere love for the brethren. That's the demonstration of holiness. And so that's where he leaves off, and he says, it's the power of the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, that enables us to do this. And remember, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 at the end of, of chapter 1. And so he begins chapter 2 by saying, we have to have a desire for that Word. Now, I know chapter or verse 1 doesn't say that, but verse 1 starts with, wherefore or in some versions, therefore. And so we have to go back, as I used to have a pastor who said this, when you see the word therefore, you have to go back to what came before it to see what it's there for, okay? And so we're going to have to do that very quickly. We look back at chapter 1, and in those words, Peter is saying that because of the salvation that we have been given through the power of God's eternal word, that's the end of chapter 1, then the following thing should be characteristic of those who are in Christ. And that's chapter 2, the first three verses. And so he starts verse 1 with, Therefore, because we're saved, because we have eternal inheritance, because we've been called to holiness, and that should be demonstrated in a fervent and sincere love for each other, therefore, 
we should have a sincere love for the word of God, from which all of that comes. Now, the main action is in verse 2, that we should have a sincere desire for God's word. Verse 1 is actually a descriptive phrase that describes a secondary action that should be happening simultaneously as we desire the sincere word of God. And we'll look at that in just a minute. That's the deleting of old sins, but we don't focus on the old sins because what we focus on is what our attention is drawn to. My dad taught me this lesson when I was about 10 or 12 years old. He was teaching me to cut the grass, and you may have heard this illustration, but I was amazed at how straight his lines were. And man, the first time I tried, I couldn't wait. You know, he got the mower started, and I started pushing, and I looked back, and man, I was like this all over the place. And I was like, how in the world does he keep it straight? So I turned around, and I started going back across the yard, and I'm focusing on that mower and trying to keep it straight, and I look back, and it's even worse the second time. And my dad said, no, the problem is where you're looking. It's where your attention is. He said, what you need to do is focus on where you're going to go and then just head straight for it. And when I understood that and then followed that direction, I looked back and the line was straight. See, if we focus on the sin, then that's what our mind is going to be on. And so Paul, Peter is not focusing on removing the sins as the primary activity of learning to grow in Christ. The primary activity is a desire for his word because that's where the substance of Christian growth is found. So verse 1 is a secondary action, and that's why we're going to go to verse 2 first, okay? But what Peter wants us to understand here in verse 2, and we look at verse 2, it says, as, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And so he's telling us that one who has truly received eternal life through the power of God's eternal word is the one that will be characterized by a ravenous desire for the truth of God from his word. Now, we read that this morning in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is where? In the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. That's the characterization or the, the, the defining character of one who has truly been redeemed. A desire for God's word, because that's where everything we need comes from. Job chapter 32, verse 12. This is Job saying, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job basically said God's word was more important than physical food for him. Jeremiah 15, uh, verse 16, Jeremiah the prophet had a very similar sentiment. He said, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's the characterization of a person who truly loves the Lord. We love his word. We have a desire for his word. When you go back in the Psalms, what is the, here's your quiz for today. What's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms? Psalm 119, okay? Do you know what the topic of, the, of Psalm 119 is? The Word of God. The entire psalm, 178 verses, 76, I can't remember exactly, the, the, but the entire psalm is focused on the believer's delight and dependence on the Word of God. Every verse in that chapter focuses on our delight and our dependence on God's Word. 
Now, the analogy that Peter uses here is of a baby desiring its mother's milk. And anybody who has a baby, there are a couple in our congregation, they will understand this analogy, okay? Now, I have six kids that we've raised. I have ten grandkids, and I've watched all of them as infants. And for about the first three to six months, the only thing they want is milk. They want to be fed, and they want it every two hours. Now, you think you're hungry? I don't think it even compares to what these little kids are, okay? They seem to be hungry all the time, but there's only one thing they want, that milk. A baby is absolutely dependent upon its mother's milk to survive, and that's the message that we see here, that we are to be like babies desiring not the mother's milk, but not just desiring, but absolutely dependent upon it. Now, I shared with you in the bulletin in my thought from the pastor, I just realized or learned this in the past couple weeks, a newborn baby should not drink water because their kidneys, their other internal organs are not developed enough to be able to handle water. Their system is created by God to receive milk from its mother. Water can actually be toxic to a young baby if given too much. And we're going to look at that analogy in just a minute, but the the baby is created by God to need that milk for nourishment. That's the only thing it can survive on. Now, we, I know we have derivations, you know, we have formula, but that formula is created to be as close to mother's milk as possible. But the baby is dependent upon that. So Peter is not just saying that a baby desires for that milk. He's saying there's a desire because the baby is absolutely dependent upon that milk for food. It will not survive without that milk. And that's the way we should be as believers, with the word of God. We can't survive without the word of God. That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying the greatest need of a true believer's life is what God can give us through his word. Now, I was just talking with somebody the last couple weeks, you know, and they said they were struggling with some things in their Christian life. And so I started asking, you know, what is your, your spiritual life like? What are the normal things you're doing? And he said, well, I, you know, I try to pray all the time. I said, well, what about reading God's word? He said, well, I haven't done much of that. And I was like, so you're having a one-way conversation. You're talking to God, but you're not letting him talk to you. You're not being fed. He said, there's probably one of the biggest problems is you're not growing and you're not being nourished. And so Peter is saying that we can't live the Christian life, we can't grow in our spiritual life without this. We need God's truth on a regular basis as a regular diet in order for us to grow. Because the scripture is more than just good information. It's not just inspiring words. This is literally the power of God unto salvation. And it is the power of God to help us to grow in holiness. It is the substance that the Holy Spirit uses to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And it is the strength that we need in order to make us bold in proclaiming the gospel and do the will of God. It is everything for a Christian. We can't get by and just say, well, I go to church, I pray, I, you know, if I read a verse every once in a while, that's good. No, that's why Christians are struggling, because we're starving to death spiritually. 
So it's not just about desiring and delighting in God's word that Peter is talking about. It is that we understand our absolute need for God's word in order for us to survive and grow as believers. Just like a baby is absolutely dependent upon its mother's milk, so we are absolutely dependent as believers on the truth of God in our lives. Now, Peter uses this uh, word when he talks about this milk of the word. He calls it the sincere or the pure milk of the word. And what he's saying is that it means to be unadulterated. It's not mixed with anything. It's not corrupted, free from corruption. The pure milk of God's word. And if we are to desire the pure milk of God's word, that means that we are reading it to accept it as it is and to have it nourish us spiritually as it is. We don't need to water it down. We don't need to dress it up. We need the unadulterated, pure word of God to teach us what we should be and what God wants to do in our lives. So Peter says, the pure word of God. And so it means that we accept what God says as absolute truth without having to question it, that we interpret it the way God intended it to be interpreted. We apply it the way God intended for it to be applied. That's the pure approach or or accepting the pure word of God without our interference or our uh, misinterpretation or application. Warren Wiersbe shares this analogy. He says, when I was a child, I didn't like milk. And his father worked for Borden Dairy, so of course they had a lot of milk. But he says his mother used to add different types of syrups and powders and flavors to it to try to make the milk taste better for him. And nothing worked. He just didn't like milk. But the point is this. As a believer, why do we have to dress it up? Why do we have to add a different flavor or, or you know, interpret it a different way to make it seem more palatable? Peter says the pure word of God is what we need, not dressed up. Now, our appetite should be for that. That brings us to this point that sometimes we have no appetite for what is necessary because we've been feeding ourselves the wrong things. Let me give you this example. When I was a new father, Bethany was newborn, I think only a month old or something, and my wife and I had to run to the store. She was sleeping. And so I stopped and I got a drink for myself and my wife went in the store and she said, well, you know, if the baby wakes up, there's a bottle in the, in the bag, you can give her the bottle. Well, Bethany, of course, as soon as my wife disappeared, woke up, started crying, and I couldn't find the bottle. But I had root beer. <laughs> and so I dipped a little bit of that root beer on her pacifier and gave it to her, and she stopped crying. The problem was, for days afterwards, she wouldn't eat anything else because she got a taste for something other than the milk and then she didn't want it and that's our problem as believers sometimes we allow ourselves to go outside of the pure milk and we feed ourselves on all of this substitute garbage that isn't good for us and we lose our appetite for what's good if you don't find God's word interesting or inspiring, or motivating to you, 
Maybe it's because you have the wrong appetite. You've been feeding yourself the wrong thing all these, time, all these years. It could be that you're just not saved. But if you know your salvation is secure in Christ, then maybe you just have the wrong diet. We need to feed on the pure word of God. And we can't substitute other things for God's word in our spiritual growth. And I know people, I'll ask them if they read, you know, do you read scripture? Well, you know, I have these devotionals, and I read these devotionals, and it has verses in it. I listen to sermons on the radio, or I fill my, my day with Christian music. It's got scripture embedded in it. You know what? That's great. I'm glad you do. But you can't grow as a believer without the word of God. And those other things are good, but they can't take the place of this. And we shouldn't try to take the place of the word of God in our lives with other things. They're substitutes. What is my job as a pastor? And I've asked people that before. And they'll say, oh, well, you're supposed to teach us what the word of God says. No, I don't look at it that way. Okay? Yes, I'm trying to help you understand the Word of God, but my goal is to teach you how to read the Bible with understanding. If all you get is what you come and hear in church, you're not getting what you need for real spiritual growth. My job is to try to explain what you read so that when you go home and you read in your own personal Bible reading, you'll understand it better and be able to apply it. I'm not here to tell you everything that you need to know about God's Word. You need to read that. I'm just here to try to help you understand it better when you do. So nothing can take the place of personally ingesting the Word of God for your spiritual maturity. I can't, I can't emphasize how important this is and how many believers just neglect this important area of our lives. Spiritual growth can only happen when we depend upon God's word to provide both the sustenance for our spiritual lives as well as the power for our spiritual lives. As I said, this is the substance of what the Holy Spirit uses in our lives both for us to be ministers to other people and to grow personally. And if we're not feeding ourselves, then we're starving to death. We forget how dependent we are on God's word. So for someone who calls himself a believer but has no desire for God's truth and rarely, if ever, opens God's book for sustenance, either you're starving to death or you're not a true believer. That's what Peter is inferring here. John MacArthur says this, Motivation for genuine spiritual growth arises out of a righteous sense of discontent. In other words, I haven't arrived yet. I don't know everything. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And he says, a righteous sense of discontent coupled with a sincere desire to be satisfied with nothing but the word of God. Another commentator puts it this way, the failure to either desire or to receive this pure milk of the word is the reason for so many problems in both individual Christian lives and in congregations. The sickly condition of so many Christians sets forth a lamentable complaint of the food with which they are supplied. To say nothing of strong meat, they don't even get milk. Hence, the church of God too much resembles the wards of a children's hospital. We are starving to death as believers because we have no desire for God's word. We have no idea of the dependence which we should have on God's word in our lives. And so Peter, what Peter is talking about is what we refer to as the sufficiency of Scripture. 
This book has everything we need, not just to be saved, but to live our lives according to the will of God and in the power of God. It is enough. We don't need anything else to add to it. And we have to look at it that way. Just like a baby absolutely is dependent upon its mother's milk, we should be absolutely dependent upon God's word for our spiritual growth. That's the first point. And we read that in verse 2. Going back to verse 1, let's look at the second point. He says in verse 1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. So the second point is that our spiritual growth depends upon a deletion of old sins and sinful thinking. It's putting off the old man, the practices, the thinking, the mindset of the old man before we were redeemed. Putting away the fleshly desires and the fleshly works that defined us before we were saved. And I want you to look at this list because Peter gives us a list of things that should no longer define our desires or actions and it's not just a random sampling that Peter kind of pulls out of the air, okay? I'm going to read through this list, first of all, so we get an understanding of what he's talking about. So he gives us this list of things we should no longer do or have in our lives. Number one is malice. Now, malice is based in the desire to do harm to someone else, but it's a general word that refers to wickedness and depravity in the heart of a person, okay? With evil intent, in other words. That's the word malice. That should not be part of a Christian's life, Peter says. He goes on. The second one is guile or deceit. Now, deceit, the root of this word in the Greek, is actually referring to fishing. It's using a hook and bait to lure somebody into a trap so they can be drawn in. Now, you would use guile to deceive someone into doing something for you or to make them think that you are something that you're not. Okay, that's guile, deceit. The third one is hypocrisy. And we looked at that as we studied the end of chapter one, the sincere, the non-hypocritical love for the brethren, remember? So this is the thing that we should not have as believers is hypocrisy. The word in the Greek actually refers to an actor wearing a mask. And that's the, where the word came from, okay? It's an actor who pretended to be something that he wasn't. That's our word hypocrisy. You understand that. And we saw last week how Peter said our love should be, for, I'm sorry, our love for each other should be unfeigned, not fake. True, real, real love. Okay, this is the opposite of that, hypocrisy, play acting at something. The next one is envy. And this means speaking of ill will and jealousy towards somebody. You just have the wrong opinion of other people because they are something or have something that you would like for yourself. That's jealousy or envy, wanting what someone else has. And if you can't have it, neither should they, by the way. That goes along with it. So that's envy. And then he finishes this list with evil speaking, or the word can be interpreted as slander. In other words, complaining or making false accusations against another person for what purpose? To make yourself look better. If you can't lift yourself up, step on others to put them down so you look higher. 
That's this evil speaking, and it's done through our words. So Peter chooses this list to tell us about these sins that shouldn't be part of our Christian lives. He says, lay these aside, put them away. And the laying aside is not a, a you know, oh, well, I'm going to do it today, but, you know, they may come back. It is a final thing. It is something that should be done permanently so that they don't come back. Now, remember that Peter introduces this book with a greeting to the strangers that are scattered throughout the known world at the time, okay? That's how he starts verses 1 and 2. And we have to understand that at this point in history, the majority of the early church are Jewish converts, okay? So Peter is talking primarily to Jewish believers and to Jews, and so this list actually has a very Jewish flavor. In fact, the whole book has a very Jewish flavor to it. The Apostle Paul gives a similar list of things that are to be put off of our life, but he's talking to Gentiles in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with men, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Different list. Okay? But he's talking to pagan Gentiles who all of that that he just named was part not only of their lives but also part of their pagan worship okay and Paul's telling these Gentiles what you did not only in your life but in your worship no longer should be part of your Christian life Peter's list is much different because even unconverted Jews did not live outwardly as bad as the Gentiles did in their worship They weren't guilty outwardly of thieving and fornicating and idolatry and effeminate, you know, and all of these things that that Paul lists. And so Peter picks a list that would apply to them, to Jews specifically. Now, the Jews in their minds, remember, were God's chosen people. We're above everybody else. We are righteous because we fulfill the law. We do the things that we're supposed to do. We don't need Jesus Christ. Now look again at the list Peter gives us. Malice, in their pride as God's chosen people, the Jews thought themselves above everyone else and held everybody else in contempt. Deceit. Now, the leaders of the Jews specifically, the Pharisees, the priests, the Sanhedrin, through the history of the nation of Israel, were guilty of deceiving people into gaining their own wealth and prosperity by abusing their position as leaders. In fact, in Ezekiel 34 and 35, God condemns the leaders of Israel for fleecing the flock through deceit. Hypocrisy. This was the greatest sin of the Jews that Jesus condemned them for, especially the Pharisees and the the Sanhedrin, because in their minds they were acting out their own religion. They were fulfilling the law according to them and showing everybody how religious they were. And Jesus says, no, you've missed the real substance of what this is all about because you don't love God and you don't love people. They were absolute hypocrites. Envy? This became a huge issue in the early church for Jews who had a real hard time accepting that God now was allowing Gentiles to become part of these special chosen people of God. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Referring to the Jews, God forbid. 
but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. God intentionally opened up his grace and mercy and salvation to the Gentiles to get the attention of his people who rejected him. But they were jealous. They were envious of what the Gentiles now were getting, and they weren't. And then the last one is slander or evil speaking. And if you remember, many of the Jews, even those claiming to be Christians, slandered many of the apostles. The apostle Paul, in fact, says in Philippians chapter 1, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. They preach Christ of contention, supposedly, or supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Peter is addressing the mindset of a self-righteous believer, maybe obviously a Jewish background, but not restricted to that. It's anybody who thinks they're good enough to be part of God's family. And this is what comes out of our works as we think we're doing what's right in performing our own religion. We saw all that back in chapter 1. And so Peter says, here's what should not be part of your Christianity, and it needs to be done away with in order for you to grow as a Christian. These should go away. There's no malice. There's no deceit. There's no hypocrisy. There's no envy or jealousy. There's no slandering. Put those away. See, our legalistic, self-righteous approach to religion is based on hypocritical and deceitful activity and attitudes that are intended to make me look more righteous than I really am in front of other people. And in our minds, maybe we even think, maybe it's going to make me look more righteous to God than I really am. But God knows our hearts. And so he says, you can't be that way as a believer. You have to put those things aside. Now, how do those things get put aside? We get in the word of God. And the word of God is that mirror that shows us what we truly are that we haven't seen before. And then the Holy Spirit starts putting his finger on things. It's okay, this needs to go. And then we need to respond in submission and say, I can't do it, Lord. You've got to take it away. And then he takes it out of our life. And then he puts his finger on something else and says, this needs to go. And we say, I can't do it, Lord, but I'll give it to you. Please take it away. And he'll take it away. And in the place of those things that he takes out, he puts the character of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. And so Peter begins chapter 2, he says, if we're truly saved, if our desires are focused on the things of God and his ways, there are certain things which used to define us that shouldn't anymore. Those have to be laid aside, but that can only happen as our focus our desire, everything we delight in, is not in what we are and what we can do, but in God's truth. And so he says in chapter 2, if we're truly saved, our desires should be focused on the things of God, and these characteristics of self-righteousness should disappear. We lay them aside. Now, in using this phrase, putting aside or putting away, Peter's giving us a command. This is in the imperative mode, by the way. It is something we must do that infers that there is weak or at work or at least a cooperative effort on our part in order for this to happen. And it really comes down to obedience. Now, how do we know if we're obeying the Spirit of God? 
because this is what the Bible tells us to do. If we're doing the things that God tells us to do in Scripture, then we know we're obeying. You can't say to me, well, you know, the Holy Spirit told me to do this. If it contradicts Scripture, it's not the Holy Spirit who told you to do that. That's your own self-will. It's Satan telling you, you know what? You don't have to do everything perfectly. You don't have to rely on God for all of your life. You have some freedom. You don't want to be a slave. Make your own choice. And we ignore God's word. And that's where these works come from. Our own efforts, our own thinking, our own reasoning. And that's why Proverbs tells us, rely not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our path. So it's obedience. Peter told us in verse 13 of chapter 1 that we are to gird up the loins of our minds. In other words, tie up all the loose ends. The, the old thinking that's still hanging out there, that still distracts us, still gets in our way. Get rid of it. Get rid of all those loose ends. But the question is this, why is, Pete, why is it that Peter assumes that we're able to put off all of these sins of wrong thinking now when we're not able to before salvation? And the answer is because when we're regenerated in salvation, we are no longer in bondage to those things. We're no longer controlled by those things. We're now supposed to be and can literally live in the control of the Holy Spirit rather than the sin nature that kept us in sin until that point. And that's why holiness is only possible after we're saved. And it's also why holiness has to include our obedience to the leading of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit points these things out in our life that have to go through the message of God's eternal word. That's where we find these things. God is not going to speak to you in some vision that is different from what he's given us in his word. It's not so much about not choosing to sin or choosing not to sin anymore, but it's a choice to give, our, give control of our lives to the Holy Spirit of God. And then just literally every day to go to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm reading in your word. What is the first step you want me to take today? What is the second step you want me to take today? How do you want me to walk? What is the path that I am to walk on today? And we'll never know that if we ignore God's word. And so this command to put off these evidences of a legalistic, self-righteous mindset is just a practical step in moving toward the holiness that God has called us to that we read back in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So the second principle, or the second thing is that it depends, our spiritual growth depends upon a deletion of these old sins and old thinking. The third principle, very quickly, is our spiritual growth depends upon a delighting in God's grace. Verse 3 says, if so be that you have tasted, the Lord is gracious. Now the word gracious there means kind or good. We, we sing the song, you are always good. We talk about the Lord being good, but do we really believe that all the time? When we get in an accident, when we get sick, when someone passes away that we didn't expect, when bad things happen all around us, is God still good? Yes, all of those things are part of his grace because he knows what's best for us. And so Peter says, those who are believers, 
your spiritual growth will be dependent upon literally delighting in the grace of God. Now, he uses the word tasting here, but the word tasting is this idea of experiencing something for the first time and realizing this is what you've always been looking for. Now, I remember as a kid, the first time we went to the fair and I had cotton candy for the first time. And I couldn't wait. Everybody was walking around. Everybody seemed to love it. And I took the first bite, and I thought, man, this is like angel food. This has got to come from heaven. It was sweet. I mean, of course, it was pure sugar. That's why I loved it so much, right? But I thought that was incredible. I couldn't wait to have more of it. And, and that's what Peter is saying here. We've tasted the grace of God. I can't wait to experience it on a regular basis. We delight in the grace of God. Now, it comes in many forms, as I said. It's, just, it's not just the things that we see, oh, God has blessed me, God has given me all this stuff. No, it's the trials that we go through that God need, knows we need in order for, to, to try our faith. It's the questions that we have. And sometimes God stands back and lets us ponder those things. And we go, God, I don't understand. I have this question, but things aren't making sense. And he's saying, you got the answers, go look. We want God to just give it to us. But it takes effort. But see, that's part of God's grace, because he knows as we apply the effort, that is part of our growth. And so Peter says, we've tasted the grace of God in salvation, but we'll continue to delight in the grace of God in our spiritual growth. All of the things that God does for us are good. And we understand that in God's grace, he will never do anything that's bad. And you say, well, you know, people get sick, people die, people get hurt, things break. Of course, there's bad things. Romans 8.28, as believers, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And so we don't look at them as tragedies. We look at them as opportunities to experience the grace of God. That's what they're for. But tasting the grace of God begins with an understanding of the truth of what he has done for us, and we can only find that in the message of his word. And again, we go right back to verse 2. What does the Bible teach us? For by grace are you saved through faith. Not works, not something you do yourself. By God's grace. Are you saved? That's the opportunity we have because of his grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. We have all the riches of heaven available to us because Jesus gave it all up when he came to earth for us. That's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul, going to God with the thorn in his flesh, three times he asked him to remove it. And God's answer, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That was God's grace in Paul's life. And he offers the same grace to us. But the question is, do we delight in that grace, no matter what form it may come in? And that's why Peter says in chapter 1, we read this when we were going through chapter 1 in verses 6 through 8, we greatly rejoice even though now for a season, if need be, we're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Why? 
because the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The bad things are for our good. That is all part of God's grace. And so it's delighting in the fact of God's sufficient grace that gives us the strength to rejoice even at the worst times of our life. So Peter is literally saying we've experienced God's grace and salvation. We'll continue to find God's grace as we seek him and as we seek his will, but it all starts with getting into his word. There's the primary uh, avenue from which we experience God's grace, from which we understand that everything is part of God's grace. It all comes back to the word of God. It's the truth of God that explains and delivers the grace of God to us, both for our need in salvation and for our personal spiritual growth after salvation. And for those who have truly tasted the grace of God, they will continue to go back to the source of God's grace. Now, in these three first three verses here, Peter reminds us of these three things. As a believer, we are dependent upon God's word. That's why we have a desire. We realize that. Number two, we will lay aside those attitudes and those actions and thought patterns that are about my own religion, my own righteousness. We can't do it without God. And then the third one is we will delight in God's grace no matter what form it comes in because we know God does all things well. That's what Peter's saying here. You want to grow in grace? You want to grow in your spiritual life? Knowing that you're saved? Get in the word. It'll help you to eliminate those sins, and it'll help you to taste the grace of God like you've never tasted it before. Now, this test, do we delight in God's word? Have we tasted the grace of God? Do we enjoy it? Are we eliminating those sins? It's not something we go around and go, oh, look at that person. They're not. Oh, look at that person. They're not. This is a self-test. We only can apply this to ourselves because no one else is responsible for your spiritual growth except you. And it's how you submit yourself to the truth of God, how you submerge yourself into the truth of God and let it change your life that is the key. And no one else can do that for you, and no one else is accountable to God for that in your place. And so we don't go around pointing at other people going, oh, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. Are we really desiring the word of God to do its work in our life? That's what Peter's saying here. Be like a baby. Desire that milk, the pure milk of the word without any watering down, without any adding to it and dressing it up, desire God's pure word because that's the substance of your growth. Nothing else will do it. Is your delight in the right place? Is your desire for the grace of God stronger each day? And are you eliminating those self-righteous thought patterns as you yield to God's spirit? We answer to God for those things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you've given us this strong message today from your word. Lord, we can delight. There's so many blessings that we have available to us in salvation, but we miss so much of it because we ignore the source of it in your word. 
Lord, we know that your word is truth, but it is the sustenance, the substance of our spiritual life. So, Lord, give us a desire. Help us to dig, to eat, to just think and meditate on your truth on a regular basis so we can experience your grace and understand what you're trying to do in our lives like we never have before. Lord, we can only do it with your help. So help us to truly be submissive to you. Do your work in us and change us into the image of Christ so that we can truly stand before you and you can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant one day. But it's up to you to do the work. It's up to us to let you do the work. We give you praise. We give you glory for what you've taught us now. May we walk in truth as we go from this place. And we thank you in Jesus' name.